Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we do ayahuasca and talk about movies, uh, sometimes <laughs> achieving profound personal revelations and other times having psychotic breaks live on air. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, <laughs> with me as always. And I'm Joe Hilliard, and I missed the porch drop this week. <laughs> <laughs> there should have been a shaman at your door. Yeah, he, I went home. <laughs> And I may be David Gurney. I don't know. I'm searching within myself to figure that out <laughs> right now. But uh, we have with us a, a fourth voice, uh, a guest who hopefully some of our loyal listeners will remember back from episode 58 when we talked about uh, Joker and King of Comedy. And that is uh, Dr. Anthony Zaccalillo. Uh Well, thank you very much, David. Well, guys, thank you for having me back. Looking forward to talking about this one. Uh, I've got quite a bit to say. I've seen this one. I've seen a lot of people uh, scratching their heads over this one on, on social media over the past few days. Well, yeah, and Anthony, I wasn't here during the Joker episode, so I only got to listen to that one, and I'm really eager to, to hear your input on these two films that we're going to talk about tonight that might require a psychologist in the room to discuss them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Well, we something. Good. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely good to have a psychologist on board. And despite our altered intro, we are not going on an ayahuasca journey this time. We're going to stick with the beer. Through. Yeah. Though, <laughs> though it may feel like it, or it may, yeah. it may have felt like it during the viewing of uh, this f first film. Right. Uh, but but what we have to put in our uh, glasses here is our first beer from Transient Artisan Ales. They're out of uh, Michigan. And this is a double IPA that they make called Happy Little Trees. Has It has a lovely uh, sort of painting of trees on the, the label and evoking uh, the great Bob Ross and the joy of painting, right, here with his yeah. little happy little trees. And the, the tie-in here being that, that at least, well— Perhaps one of the characters in the film <laughs> <laughs> does some painting. <laughs> Multiple of them may, or maybe just one, or maybe none. But uh, but painting is involved and does seem to be a character, uh, you know, point, a point of the the character in in some of the film. But in any case, without question, we're going to be drinking this one. So I'm going to get mine cracked open. If you guys already, I see Joe's already poured his. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I already took a sip. Sorry. Yes. Right now. Well, no, it's a double IPA is going to be the prescription for the film. I think that we're about to discuss. It smells great, and I'm looking forward to trying this brewery for the first time on the show. Yeah, I've had some transient in the past, but it's been a little while, and and I've always thought they did a good job. So I'm looking forward to this one. And we need something high octane because you know, as we've already alluded to the well both films but certainly this first film that we're going to talk about uh they're definitely not easy ones to take you you get it these are some hard challenging uh films that, that we've laid before ourselves here this week yeah you you don't smooth brain this film oh no <laughs> no, oh, no no to go back to our bill and ted conversation yes, yeah this is anti-smooth brain uh yeah viewing. and you know i i keep ha I, I keep having this problem in this like I'm not trying to take the reins of describing this film because what would I even say? I don't know. But I'm thinking of ending things as the film. And it's so close in my mind to I think you should leave that I keep 
just like when I talk to people about the movie, I'm like, oh yeah, have you seen? I'm thinking of leaving. Uh, the and I think you should leave as the Tim Robbins like sketch comedy show, which couldn't be any farther removed <laughs> from I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, but the names are just so similar. I just keep twisting them up in my head. Yeah, well, let's, yeah. Let, let's describe it a little bit. I'm thinking. Good I'm luck. thinking. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago on Netflix. It's the newest Five film. Days ago. By, yeah, by Charlie Kaufman. We talked about, and I don't think I was present for that conversation either. Anomalisa, his animated film. What year was that? I I don't recall off the top of my head what year that film came out. But I think we did came, that. I think it came out in 2017. Our episode would have been in 2018. And yeah, that would be what episode three, substandard puppet sex, is the title of the film. Episode five. five. I went back and listened to it. Okay. <laughs> I, good. After yeah, watching, I, I wanted to hear the Anomalisa uh, discussion one more time. Ethan hated <laughs> it, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to hear David's take on it because okay. I suspect that we're going to hear some of the same things. Okay. Well, well, we um, did that back in episode five, and of course, Charlie Kaufman, you know, his directorial debut was Synecdoche, New York, but he had written a few films before that. One of which we talked about in episode ninety, being John Malkovich. I think a film we all love, mm -hmm. okay. and um, you know, of course, directed by Spike Jones, who we may revisit in the second half of this episode but in this film uh, jesse plemons who we all know from breaking bad and many other things i do not and, know him from breaking bad never okay saw he picks up his uh they may have been dating for weeks they may have been dating for months but uh he picks up her name may be lucy her name may be louisa her main name may be lucia her name you know there's a lot of play i believe, I believe she's credited as young woman there you go. Well, Jesse Buckley plays the young woman. They're headed to Jesse Plemons's Jake's parents' house for her to meet his parents for the first time. And that's about all I want to describe because uh, that's about the only linear part of the film. The rest of it <laughs> is a mind dance, as we expect from Charlie Kaufman, seeing not only the films that he directed prior to now, but the films that he's written, certainly. Yeah, the movie... Um you know it's it's funny i i couldn't the order in which we're discussing these films in this episode is the opposite of the order that i watched them in and there is a big part of the second film we're going to talk about spoiler alert adaptation where um uh, they describe voiceover as like a cheap uh <laughs> like a cheap device that like undermines your your screenplay and is terrible or whatever and so this movie uh, I'm thinking of ending things starts with voiceover narration. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of it throughout. And then we're on a 20 minute car ride. And then we're at their parents' house for about an hour. Then we're about on a half an hour car ride. And then we're in like a 20 minute dance sequence. And it is, I mean, it is these r really long meditative stretches of dialogue and of like inner monologue. And it is dizzying. And inner monologue that often factors into the dialogue as if the characters are reading each other's minds to a certain extent, yeah. which is sometimes overtly referenced and then other times kind of slipped in there. But we should also mention, um, it's not part of the plot, but something that is can something that you can grab onto at least is that Tony Collette plays uh, Jake's mother 
and uh, former Kaufman collaborator David Thewlis of Dragonheart fame uh, plays his father. I would also like to point out that the name Jake has forever been ruined by State Farm commercials. I wish they would have chosen a different name. It was hard to take anybody saying the name Jake seriously because then I just heard in my head, uh, I'm wearing khakis or whatever, like from that commercial. I just, I can't remove the name from the State Farm commercials and it was very distracting for me. Well, luckily for me, I don't, I didn't have that block. Yeah, I was but you're say, right. It's a very specific thing just to me that probably nobody else experienced. No, but Tony Collette, David Thewlis playing the parents that are different ages every time we see them. Um, and, and you mentioned that they can read one another's minds or it appears that they do. David, there's so much more here than this couple of sentence that I, I put out. There is the notion that the whole thing is the imagination of a janitor at a high school. I mean, we could spend an hour trying to come up with the plot of the film. I want to get into the notion of whether or not we liked it okay. as a as a Kaufman work. So th- is, is that how we start to talk about this film? Because that's that's really what I think I want to ask everybody is how do we discuss this? Where do we begin? Because you can't – normally we would start with plot, and we can't do that here. I mean we tried, and that got – that was maybe like a minute and a half of airtime, but that there's so much more to discuss. Where do we begin? Anthony, do you want to – do you have? Well, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts help. about this. Yeah, help, help us help us navigate this thing. Oh no no no! Do not put that on me. <laughs> I, I, I am I am ill equipped to navigate this film, but I I, I do want to sort of disperse this idea that this is a psychological thriller. Um, I don't think that there's anything psychological or thrilling about this movie. <laughs> I would agree um, that it is about as far from a thriller as it could possibly be. <laughs> And I and I do know that the book that it was based on, I think, had a little bit more of the thriller ending aspect of it. So maybe that's where that came from. But I kind of saw this way more as philosophical than psychological. Uh, but I don't know how to navigate it any better than any of you guys do, because. Well, I think I think there's a couple of essential questions to ask before we finish talking about it. But you're, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of philosophy here. And to me. Before we get to whether we liked it or not, we could talk about what we thought we saw. And I alluded to the notion that there is a there's a constant cut to a janitor, an older gentleman mm-hmm. who is a janitor at the high school. And I am to believe that we are watching this man, Jake, reflect on what might have been, what could have been in the way that memory is fleeting and difficult to memory isn't snapshot it's not super reliable right so we're seeing versions of which explains to me why the parents age through what our visit with them not just but also like in the dad's case gets really old but then gets super young again so it's like it's not even a linear aging it's all over the place david what where 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 are you at with this Oh, he just muted himself. Uh, he he's going. He's got his mute opposite. Yeah. Sorry. You're good. I I thought I was off then. Um. So you know, I had I don't know if it was an advantage or a disadvantage now, but I had read the book. Um. So I knew going into it some of how it was going to be structured, though the book ends up being much more overt about what it wants you to think, even though there's a little bit of mystery kind of 
to, to, to some of how it concludes. Um, so it robbed me to a certain extent of some of that confusion where I was seeing those cuts to the janitor and I expected the janitor. I knew the janitor was going to show up. The janitor doesn't show up until much later in the novel, but in the, in this film interspersing it, it seemed to be there to replace the framing mechanism that they used in the book, which were these two anonymous people kind of gossiping about the aftermath of this horrid event at this high school that was, uh, you know, this, yeah. So they, t they took that out, which I'm kind of glad I'm glad Kaufman did away with that and, and decided not to, um, to, to make it as overt. It doesn't get as, um, horrific at the end by any means, even if, you know, there is something unsettling certainly about, about where it goes in the high school. People but, dancing is always unnerving. <laughs> and, and the staging of Oklahoma at a Nobel prize ceremony in a high school auditorium is very unsettling. I mean, just how <laughs> people think. But, Oklahoma uh, <laughs> in general, not just the play, but the state as yeah. well. Um, but, but I mean, you know, let's, I really enjoyed this film. I mean, I, when I was reading the book, was scratching my head over, how do you adapt this? What, what kind of film do you make out of this? Knowing the reason I read it was not because I had heard about the novel, but because I knew Kaufman was making this movie version of it. Um, so I was really excited, like, how is he gonna do this? What, what is he gonna do? Um, and he took it in some directions that I didn't necessarily predict. Um, I think he got much more into this idea of how we all weave these stories. I think what you were talking about with with memories not being like these perfect snapshots that we can just pick up and look at and then pass to the next one, like that they all kind of blend together and not even just with our own experience, but things that we might have wanted to do, stories that we've read, movies by Robert Zemeckis that we happen to see uh, on our lunch break <laughs> or Ron Howard for that matter, right? Um, or John Cassavetes. I mean, that there were all of these different kind of pieces being put into place that seem kind of Wordsworth poems, you know, that, that were, that stuff was to me, like that was Kaufman bringing in that fascination that he has with all these different texts that we're surrounded by, right? I mean, like from being John Malkovich, which we've talked about, being very interested in, you know, the career of this actor and how everybody misremembers it, right? He, yeah. You're in that heist movie. I love that heist movie. <laughs> yeah. That all, all of that that kind of goes on with it. I mean, it draws out some of these themes and I get where Anthony's coming from about it not necessarily, it's, I don't think it's a thriller. Um, and and I can totally understand where you'd, you'd come at it and think like, well, is this really even about psychology as much as, as, much as it's about philosophy or, or some kind of existentialism? Like, what does it mean to be a person, a subject? You know, wh what constitutes the subject? Um, when we're watching these characters, do they count as people or, you know, what we learn about them? The thing that and I'll and I'll pass the torch here in a moment. But the thing that I want to make sure I, I say that this film does much better than book than the book is the is the young woman character, the Lucy character, the the Ames character. In the book, that character I felt was very underwritten. And in a way that worked because it was like the idea of this man imagining what a woman would be. Once you realize that, it kind of makes sense that she would be that flimsy and 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 weird here. But even though there's some wishy-washiness in there and it's weird how she's like, well,
Oh, does she want to be with this guy? Does she not want to be with this guy? Is she an artist? Is she more interested in physics? Is she more interested? Like all these things kind of change. I think that um, Jesse Buckley, right? That that's the. I think she did a fantastic job. I really, really love. And I don't know her from anything. I think she's an Irish actress and uh, and has been in some films, maybe some indie films over in the UK. I thought she was fantastic magnetic i mean she kind of stole it from from plemons uh oh, in yeah. their scenes together 100 percent. Um, though it's pretty tough to match with tony collette and david thulis for that matter but I she mean, does well they are so, I mean, just yeah chewing up the scenery going at it these big theatrical expressions and stuff like yeah uh i I'm glad that you said all of those things because it has grounded me and helped me organize my thoughts in a way that I believe to now, finally, after 36 hours of sitting on this film, uh, makes sense to me. <laughs> but I, I, one thing I like, I knew that Jake was the janitor, uh, that seemed pretty clear to me. I didn't know, I, you know, I had no idea what that was going to mean or like, why that was happening or anything like that but i was like okay this has to be the guy and then also as soon as um as soon as the young woman is telling the story of how she met jake and it changes mid-story at that point i was like okay she's not like an like a, a real person necessarily she seems to be kind of this representation of the woman in his life at various different like at first i thought like okay maybe he has condensed all of these events of bringing different girls home at different times into one singular kind of thing or that's how we're seeing it at least um but i thought that i thought that it was very interesting and like it, and it like yeah it, it's it spun my head around to me, it's like a meditation on like relationships and like time and how we like look back on our lives. Like I, I found it very meditative and very like calming to a point where like, you know, it, it was dreamlike in a sense. Like I've, I've, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but the first time that I saw a racer head, I felt like when it was over and I turned the lights in my room on, I felt like I had just like woken up from like an eight hour sleep or whatever. Uh, and I kind of felt similarly with this. I, not that I necessarily was like falling asleep, but just like almost drifting off, like just like existing in this weird, incoherent kind of world in someone like I, I guess just like existing in someone else's brain in a way uh that was hard to follow but also you're totally in it while it's happening and then you like wake up from it and have to make sense of it I don't know it was all like really crazy um I had like I had to do some reading about it afterwards to figure out what the fuck happened uh and there was a, a Newsweek article where like it says that in the book, you know, this guy's body is found with all these notebooks of these stories or whatever. And then I, like it clicks immediately. Like, so David, you and I had had a very, very brief conversation that almost got out of hand pre podcast recording and we had to stop it. But, uh, cause a friend of mine had said like, I don't know if I'm stupid or if I'm like, or cause I didn't understand this movie at all or like blah, 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 blah. And my response to her was like, I don't think you're supposed to 
understand a Charlie Kaufman movie the first time you see it, at least the ones that he has directed as well as written. Spike Jones, I think, has a way of getting it all to make sense in a more traditional narrative way. But um, but you had said that you felt like you had this advantage of having read the novel. And then as soon as you said that, you're like, okay, I've said too much already. We need to, you know, whatever. And it, that makes so much sense to me now, having been given that piece of information about the novel. And knowing that, I find the film to be even more brilliant than the first time that I saw Like, when I saw it at first, I was like, this is crazy. Like, he's really doing something here that, like... Because I don't know, it's one of those things that like instinctually you feel like it has connected with you in a way, but that when you actually try to think about it and like um, articulate it in a way that is like makes sense, it's difficult to do. So it's one of those things that can like get you at your core, but then you really have to sit with it and think on it and maybe even watch it again a, a third time even to be able to fully comprehend. But I think when someone's able to make art that does that in that way where intellectually you don't immediately lock onto it but it hits you somewhere at your core that's i don't know that's like that's incredibly like impressive and something that like i don't think that we see a lot of and so i love i love this movie i love charlie kaufman you already know what the <laughs> deal is. Um, but that was kind of in a broad scope my relationship with my viewing of my interpretation of this movie. Anthony, Joe, which one of you wants to tackle this? Bad boy? It's Anthony. It's Anthony's turn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could, I could jump in here. Um, I feel like I watched a different movie than you guys did. <laughs> uh, not that I disliked it. Um, and as soon as it was as soon as as it was over, I said I need to see it again because um, I really viewed it in three parts. Um, that first drive, um, then the whole scene of the house, and then the uh, the scene of the house, and then the the drive to the school, and then the school. And so I have this middle part of that film that I've really kind of twisted over since I've seen it and have tried to sort of deconstruct it and thinking about it bookended by these shit pieces like that. I just can't wrap my head around. Like, I, I mean, I know one of the things he likes to do is sort of show the mundane elements of life and not necessarily with likable characters. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find any of the characters in this terribly likable, which is fine. I don't need to like my characters, but I didn't find anything about uh, Jesse and, uh, or I'm sorry, Jake and whatever her name is. I, I didn't find anything believable about their relationship from the start. And so I was out of it. And so it was kind of one of those things where it was like, I, I was this ahead of the story almost like I knew that there was something off here, but I didn't know quite how to process it. And I just didn't like them. Like, and so the passive aggressiveness in their conversation, you know, the, the, just the idea of going out to, you know, mom and dad's farm, I just wasn't buying it. Um, I got into it though. Once they met the dog, actually, like the dog was the first thing that, uh, kind of made me go, all right, something's going on here that, 
And then, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, like I said, that whole in the house and then the drive that I really, really enjoyed that middle part. And I don't want to be the first person to comment on the end other than what you guys have already said. I, I knowing how the book ended, I felt disappointed with the ending. Well, I mean, I'm just a huge Kaufman fan. And so all three of us, I think, said we were excited about this film when we did our uh, looking forward to 2020. Here comes here comes Corona. Will, Will we be able to see any of these films so that this was released on Netflix, which which was as intended Uh, at this moment? It was perfect because I I thought Bill and Ted was garbage. I said that last (laughs) week. And, you know, and some of the other new releases that we've watched have been a little underwhelming, but this one did exactly what I hoped Kaufman would do, which was to give me a puzzle, which was to give me something that requires that second viewing that Anthony, you and Carlos both said is probably required on this kind of thing. And that hits me right where I want to be when it comes to the films I love. I'm I'm not the smooth, great, smooth brain guy of the three of us normally. So that this gave us a puzzle. And something to watch again. I, my only regret is that I, I didn't get to watch it twice. I really like this movie. And I'll tell you that as much as I love, you know, we'll talk about this more in the second half, maybe the Spike Jones and the Charlie Kaufman connection and how it's difficult to say they're all Charlie Kaufman films as far as the script is concerned. But this, um, this one is high up on the list, high up on the list. I, I, I enjoyed this film very, very much. And I, I was wondering, Anthony, if this was like it, because Charlie Kaufman, we don't like him. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the second half, because he does not like himself. And all of his films are autobiographical to to a degree. And so what he's doing in this film, I think, more than anything, is a deconstruction of himself the way that we see in most of his other work. And he's not he would admit a likable fellow and that's what makes me like the films it's not it's not sugar-coated the the corners aren't sanded down so that we can appreciate it more it's raw and human so so i i agree and i think that you know when we look at uh you know jake's character right it, he is expressing sort of those mundane fears of aging and loneliness and relevance and you know, clearly he is. And, and, uh, and Anthony, I'll, I'll interrupt you. Duty to family. What's that? Duty to family. Oh, yep. Duty to family, and definitely a very just by you know the parents, uh, you know, just looking at them through the lifespan, you know, as they age and and you know go forward and backward. Like clearly, there's some elements of mom's character that's definitely schizophrenia. And so it kind of adds a little, you know, to what, you know, we're seeing with Jake, especially towards the end, you know, is that a dream? Is that a hallucination? You know, it it, clearly that was part of it. But I mean, like, there's also this element, he's like really this frustrated intellectual. um, And you can kind of see that. He like uh, bangs on the table at his mom yeah. like it's the genus edition. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, every time mom mispronounced something, <laughs> yeah. you know, he would get upset. But I mean, there was even that one where, uh, and I don't remember the story, but mom was saying that he got the resilience pin, you know, instead yeah. of the, you know, and and 
that I, I that was where I was kind of like, okay, this is real interesting. Like he tried real hard, but you could just tell he never really was able to sort of, you know, maybe accomplish what he wanted to. And it and, started and, and dad, the enabling, you know, conspirator to the schizophrenic mom. You know, yeah. I mean, if if you've lived any version of that, I mean, this movie hits you. They, their performances are so good. Like Tony oh, Flood no, and David God, are yeah. amazing in this movie. Uh, so, so Anthony, you said you didn't want to be the first one to tackle the end of this movie. So let's tackle the end of this movie. They leave uh, the house after the parents have aged plus or minus 20 years at any given point in time, give or take. Um, Cause uh, the young woman has to work early in the morning. They're driving. This is like a 20 to 30 minute uh, car drive. That's like divided. Don't worry. He has chains. Uh, he's got chains. Don't worry. The chains hey, he's are got in the chains. trunk. They're, they're in the trunk. Don't uh, worry the, about it. The 20 to 30 minute car ride scene is divided in half more or less by a stop at Tulsi town, which is a very dairy queen esque. Um, that's a, a really bizarre. In fact, scene. if I remember correctly, it is Dairy Queen in the novel. I wondered why they made that switch if Dairy Queen just didn't want to jump on board with this yeah. <laughs> dark vision of. Yeah, uh, I, oh, I read that. Yeah, they couldn't get the rights to it, so he, mm. you know, went the Tulsi Town route. See, and I'm glad that they, they did that because <laughs> Tulsi Town to me is much more entertaining and enjoyable than Dairy Queen, uh, even though Dairy Queen is very relatable, uh, especially. I don't know if it's like this in other states, but if you're a Texan, I mean, there's one in every little teeny tiny town. Um, but but then when they this arrive, is country. yeah. But then when they arrive at the high school, uh, you know, there's like a whole back and forth thing in the car. He goes inside uh, and then disappears, and then she like gets out of the car, locks herself out, goes inside, finds old man Jake the janitor. Uh, they have a brief conversation, and then finds. Jake of the age that we are used to seeing him as portrayed by Jesse Plemons. And then their characters come out from behind each other and are like even younger versions, I guess. And then they, there's this whole choreographed dance scene that goes through the hall into the gym where it's snowing. Uh, another janitor, uh, maybe Jake as well. I'm not really sure. Stabs younger Jake. He dies. And then the other two, you know, Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley that we've seen the whole film come in and they like look at each other's like whatever. Then the old, uh, version of Jake, the janitor goes into his car, doesn't turn it on, comes out naked following a maggot infested pig through the halls of the high school. Um, gets dressed, delivers the speech from a beautiful mind, accepting an award. There's a reenactment of Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, holy fucking shit. Like, the <laughs> last 20 minutes of this movie hey, I, is bananas. I, I, admi I admired how well you did this, Dan Carlos. Uh, yeah, you, you did The last well. 20 minutes of this movie is crazy. Uh, I still don't fully understand what the fuck happened there. Um, yeah. I... <laughs> That is the that is the part that lasts like twenty minutes is the part of the film I have seen twice. I went back and watched it again because I was like, okay, I need to kind of try to get a grip on what is going on here. And then I also went and watched the scene from A Beautiful Mind that they you know had taken uh, at the end of this movie. I don't know what to do with this like portion of the movie. I don't know if anybody else like I, I, yeah. mean, I, I, well, I get that it's like I mean 
And th- and that's where I'm saying the the book it's it's much clearer what goes even though it's strange in its own way it's much clearer what goes on there there isn't the dance sequence there isn't the fascination with Oklahoma or a beautiful mind that's Kaufman that's Kaufman bringing that in um, and it's cl- it's clearer that there's a death that 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 happens um, the, the movie it's like the flash the, before your eyes type situation or something like yeah. that. Or, you know, hallucination or. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it just becomes clear that that the girl, that the woman is Jake and they're the same person. There's kind of this moment of recognition like, oh, we're not even different. We're the same people, you know. Um, But here it's it's left more ambiguous. And I think if you haven't read the novel and certainly if you haven't been following along there are i went back i actually i didn't watch the entire thing a second time but i did go back and kind of pop in and out to look at different because i thought i had seen things the first time around there are this is going to be a film that for those who are drawn in enough to want to watch it a second time there's lots there okay there's lots of little um repetitions of certain framings certain see there's very early on you get a you get a shot of jesse plemons looking out a window from behind the character and then just a little bit after that you get almost the same shot framed with the old man looking out the same window you get um you know them on the road saying certain things that then we cut to the old man and what he's doing is very much in sync with what they're talking about or what they're all these indications clues these aren't like separate we aren't just parallel editing we aren't going from spot to spot we're actually we're showing you different aspects of this one mind that's at work right here um so you know i think that said it doesn't make the surrealism of that last stretch of the film or the time with the parents in the house or you know what have you um it doesn't make that stuff more easily explained but but it does put it in a certain context that that made it a lot easier for me to let it go like i said I feel like, yes, it was an advantage to have read the novel, but also a disadvantage because I kind of wanted to know, like, how would I be thinking about this if I didn't know these things about what the story had been in the novel? You know, obviously he's he's changed some stuff. Um, You know, I love that sequence with the pig, (laughs) the animated pig walking down the hallway, um, waxing profound to to the uh, the old man, to old Jake as as he's walking down the hallway. Uh, w- was just one of the strangest. I would have never anticipated th- that, and I don't know that I even understand where that. I'm sure there's some connection he's making there to something that I'm just not thinking of with a pig character or something. I don't know, but um, but all the other stuff kind of kind of ties in. I don't know. The w- other thoughts that, that as people were going through that final section of the film, I feel like Anthony's got something. Well, no, because. <laughs> Again, kind of what I was thinking when I was watching it and then what I was thinking as it wrapped up um, kind of brought me to, you know, just this idea of, you know, was that entire ending just a dream or was it his life flashing before his eyes? Uh, Was it a hallucination? Um, Because I kind of just came back to that end scene with with the car covered and kind of just thought he had never gotten out of the car right so kind of i was like all right this is playing out in his mind what is this and trying to figure out what it meant i never got to that part um but i was curious about something because i totally missed it and it wasn't until i read something later um did you guys like watch through the end of the credits Mm -hmm. 
Because apparently at the end, the very, very end of the credits, there's like a banging and a car starting up that happens off camera, at, not explained in any way. Yes, this that, is accurate. Yeah. And I was like, oh, great. Like <laughs> here I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe he's just dead in the car. Maybe I could just kind of settle it like that. You know, they'll find his body one day. Uh, no, maybe, maybe not. Maybe he just fell asleep. I, so you guys saw that? I did, yeah, like an hour ago. <laughs> oh, okay. when I you went back when I rewatched I, yeah, the I end, a, yeah, yeah, uh, I had a similar experience where I hadn't watched through the full credits, but then, like you, Anthony, I was reading a little bit about it, and somebody had mentioned something about oh, and then that final car sound at the end. It's like what is now to me, even having watched it now, it's not clear to me that that it's the truck starting up. It probably isn't. It seems like some other vehicle. Is it a plow truck coming along to, you know, clear the lot? Are they? Is it like just that he's going to be discovered? I don't know. I mean, but it is. It's just like a little like punctuation question mark. Just <laughs> like, like a, fuck you. You didn't understand yeah. the rest of this. You're not going to understand this shit either. That's right. I'm not even letting you have these credits. Yeah. As yeah. I'll I'll go last, and they, therefore y'all can't refute anything that I say. <laughs> Uh, I believe that all four of us, if we went round robin, had some kind of traumatic introduction to death and decay. And for, it might have been in the book, David, you can answer that question or not. This pig story of a pig's rotting with maggots in them affected someone deeply. And now that is the mechanism through which we are confronting death. The death of our parents, the death of ourselves, the death of our loved ones, whatever it is. Okay, so hey, how about this happy trees? Happy little trees, <laughs> delicious. Great segue. Oh, Very man. nice joke. Yeah, Crushed that's it. one of our smoothest of all time. No, but um, happy little trees from Transient out of Michigan. I'm going to tell you right now. I'd love a second glass of this. This beer bucks. I, that's good, right? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I, I'm I'm a very happy camper really here. It, it was a it was a great beer to have with that kind of conversation too. It's got a deep, deep, deep floral bouquet to the flavor yeah. and the smell. Mm-hmm. And whatever they did, they did it correctly. And I I hope we get some more transient on the show as soon as we can. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it a lot. Uh, now, hence the empty glass. Right. I should apologize because we did not get this beer to Anthony. So he has been drinking along with us with uh, Anthony. I'll let you describe what you were drinking. <laughs> Just a, uh, a lovely rogue Dos Equis that I found in my uh, fridge and it was light and refreshing and uh, it was fine. Very nice. <laughs> Whatever fuel going to get you through it see it seemed to be giving you what you needed that's that's the important thing that is but was there but was there a psychological detachment that's what i needed <laughs> <to know. laughs> well speaking of psychological detachment uh kaufman loves playing around i mean with characters who have sort of multiple um subjectivities that they're experiencing certainly that's going on in this film we're going to look in the second half we've already said what the film is adaptation which has a lot of that same thing going on although he uses a much different kind of device to get that across in that film and one that i've always loved and i can't wait to talk with you guys about when we get back from the break (laughs) 
You will hear me in this episode claim that we are having our first New Jersey beer, but I was mistaken. We had had a New Jersey beer on just one of our more recent episodes with First Cow as our film. Um, my apologies, all of our New Jersey <laughs> listeners. I, I did not mean to forget our first beer from your lovely state, but uh, we love giving you the love a second time. You know what I mean? Like the scratch marks and, oh, the, what's in the basement? And, you know, even them driving in the storm and the leering, you know, and you just get the, is he going to, you know, attack her? The book had that too. That's where I thought it was going. Yeah. Yeah. He has this like tendency to like, like, I remember when we were watching it, Kylie was like, uh, this is the most stressful thing because he keeps he he'll start talking before she's done talking and it seems right. like it's just really weird it it makes it very tense like you know he doesn't necessarily care what she's like saying and is just like waiting for his turn to speak and is like the kind of like domineering you know hyper intellectual boyfriend or whatever and then yeah like you said with the scratch marks just how long they're in the car for is very tense. Like making them when they stop at Tulsi town and he like won't get close to the counter. Like there's all of these elements of like hinting of something dark and nefarious going on. And maybe that dark and nefarious element is just him. Is just that we're in his mind and none of this happening. I don't know. It's just, I don't know the whole thing. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot happening. Yeah. That, yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, and I am going to watch it again. As much as I didn't care for big parts of it, I I feel like that I owe that one a second watch because I still can't get my head wrapped around it. <laughs> the completely unrealistic like aging makeup at the end of the film mm. too was something yeah. I liked a lot. Uh, well, it was it was like theater makeup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was it was like what you would do for high school kids in a production of Oklahoma or something yeah. that need to play an older character. Yeah, it was it was yeah. Yeah, it was very it was, funny. Uh... <laughs> and we're back. Look at that, huh? Wasn't gonna let and... Joe get away with this one this week. No, uh... Joe hasn't hasn't stolen one in a while. No, but Let's... every time he says, "I let you have that one." Oh, yeah. First no of all, claim that this time. First of all, I'll let you have it. Secondly, let's, <laughs> let's, let's drink. Yeah, let's let's drink. This um, is a really we're excited. Fan. We're really excited this time because we are finally visiting a state that's long overdue and actually totally appropriate given our guest. Uh, Anthony is originally from the great state of New Jersey, the Garden State. The great state of New Jersey. That's right. And so we are taking our first virtual trip there with uh, this beer from Cypress Brewing out of Edison, New Jersey. This is also an IPA. And I guess, yeah, we'd call it a, a double or an imperial. They're calling it an imperial. It's double dry hopped with Vic Secret and Galaxy. It's called Imperial Runway Models. And so we have the silhouettes of these fashion models with uh stormtrooper helmets on and uh <laughs> so we're gonna crack this open get it in our glass and and finally taste something from our well, num taste. number one our our march toward tasting all beers from all 50 states covid will not get in our way <laughs> it so, has. so and david you brought this one to the table so thank you you're welcome. And number two, it's a first double IPA. I'm sorry. It's a first IPA, double IPA episode, meaning we drink two IPAs 
on the show in a double, very double long, IPA. Double, in a, double double IPA in a very long time. Oof. Get, getting back on our game, guys. That's that's what we're doing, and we're reviewing two mind-bending films, uh, and 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 that's where we like to be. Uh, as we've already talked about in in the first half, we're looking at another of Charlie Kaufman's films. So this is one that he was credited solely as screenwriter, um, and not even just by himself. It was yeah, a co-writer <laughs> credit. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but but directed by Spike Jones, 2003's adaptation, which also um, is based on a novel, or not a novel, <laughs> but a nonfiction book uh, that, that had come out just a few years before that called The Orchid Thief. Um, in fact, at its very core, this film is about the act of adaptation, trying to take something told in one medium, bring it to another, um, but but also about adaptation in, in other ways. It's, a, it's another one that's going to be really hard to synopsize. Um, but I don't know. Does anybody else want to take a stab or should yeah, I? Yeah, I'll, I'll oh. give it a go unless okay. Carlos go, no, go nuts. No, Joe, go for Car- it. Uh, Charlie Kaufman wrote Being John Malkovich. The film is a version of his life post being John Malkovich. And he is a screenwriter that has been tasked with ad- adapting The Orchid Thief, a very, very popular book when it came out. I mean, yeah. a, a real book with we're, a real author. We're watching somebody adapting a book into a screenplay while also writing themselves into the screenplay. And the movie that we're watching is the life that they're living, which they are adapting into the screenplay about the book that they can't really adapt. Okay, so Carlos, clearly you prepared some material prior <laughs> to us getting together. And I'm glad that you did because you set it up very, very nicely. That's great. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, I don't even really understand what I just you're said. You're absolutely right. And, and, he, and here is the thing. The thing that I want to believe without doing a lot of research to know that it's true is that in real life, Charlie Kaufman was tasked with adapting The Orchid Thief based on the success of his screenplays prior to that moment. David knows and that, this question. And that during the adaptation of that into a screenplay, he had difficulty doing it and turned in a script that was this script that his buddy Spike Jones directed, which is him writing the book, not an adaptation of the, I'm sorry, writing the screenplay, not an adaptation of the screenplay. Yes. <laughs> I mean, sure. Right, well, Anthony, Anthony, it's your turn. Oh, I, I thought that this was a brilliant pairing. I, I just love the idea of going back and watching this film, which I've always loved, and the struggles of adapting a book that really couldn't be adapted. And I felt watching it so connected with. Um, uh, ah, I'm like Carlos, I'm always thinking the wrong name. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things and trying to adapt that book and writing himself, you know, or at least his psyche into that book. I just love the synergy between these two films. Um, And it's always been one of my favorite films anyway. So when uh, when you asked me if we wanted to do these two, I was like, hell yeah. I'm glad that I didn't force adaptation into our hundredth episode because it was almost my pick for our Nick Cage spectacular. But, Agreed. but you're right, Anthony. I, I watched adaptation first 
because it is one also one of my favorite movies and I if I find out that somebody that I know that is like a film lover hasn't seen it I berate them until they finally break down and watch I've even given I've probably given away as many copies of this movie as I bought to the, I currently do not own it any longer. So I'll give it, if somebody is like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what, I don't want to pay for it. I'm like, here, just fucking take this DVD, go home and watch it. Um, and so I watch it first to put myself in a familiar like situation with Kaufman where like I've seen the film uh, at least a couple of times and I can kind of get into that you know, kind of surrealist territory with him that, you know, I know that he likes to go into and feel comfortable when going into, I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, and yeah, and I, I literally actually did watch them back to back, um, with a small break in between, but yeah, I mean, you're totally right the way that, I mean, it's, and it's, it was, like I said, in the first, like, like in the very first, the beginning of the first half of the episode, I, I had to reference the you know disdain for voiceover expressed in adaptation in the way that I'm thinking of anything starts. Um, but David, do you know how tr- did the, was Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt the Orchid Thief and then was like, okay, fuck it, this is what I'm gonna do? Yes, that okay. that was the yes I was giving Joe. Yeah, I mean, okay, this was a project that he was brought on to i mean they were trying to adapt this film it was something i think jonathan demi had you know procured the rights was trying to find the right team to to work on it got kaufman involved and kaufman from what i understand was genuinely struggling with how do i adapt this kind of non-fiction a lyrical look at the you know world of uh, you know um exotic flowers and orchids and and this you know, anyway, all that was there and that at some point, and I don't know that I've heard, you know, how that, how that switch happened or if it had anything to do with how it's depicted in the film, but at some point he made that switch from, I'm not going to write just a straight adaptation. I'm going to make a movie about adaptation. And in order to do that, I'm going to create this, I'm going to insert this device of actually splitting myself and it won't be just me working on this screenplay. It's going to be that I also have a twin brother named Donald, who is also an aspiring screenwriter or, or is an aspiring screenwriter to complement my successful screenwriter, who's going to be the one who I sort of bounce ideas off of or who bounces ideas off of me and sort of plays the foil to my, here I am this esoteric, screenwriter who's only going to go with these big bold philosophical questions an artist um, right wants to make films about how nothing actually changes in life and like film is so false where it shows us change and we don't actually change and and a brother on the other hand who is buying into every single stock principle of screenwriting it is uh, it's such a brilliant device to mm -hmm. have it be like two twin brothers one of which who is giving into every just repulsive screenwriting trope that if you're like 
an artist trying to push the medium forward, you would just find reprehensible that you right. would, you know, and, and finding success. Yeah. And also yeah, yeah being successful. Cause that's what, you know, that's the lowest common denominator. What the masses want is to be able to just easily like be able to recognize, Oh yeah, I've seen a movie where this happens and I've seen a movie yeah. where this happens and now it's happening in the same movie and I love it. And right. as somebody trying to push and, it has to be said before we get too deep into it, casting Nick Cage as twin brothers, mm -hmm. a master class. Yeah. Well, a I, stroke listen, of if, genius. If, the greatest yeah. living American actor playing <laughs> twins. If Nicolas Cage is our mascot, fine, because this movie proves this man can act. Well, forget, go listen to our hundredth episode. We, we like Nick Cage around here. You know, well, um, and in our hundredth episode, we focused on scenery chewing Nick Cage. Yeah, he's kind of the opposite here. I mean, oh, he does like, a little bit here, a though. Little Donald, bit. he has Donald moments, does. but so much of it is so inward. Push, push, that, push in the bush. Oh, no, Come on. Charlie, Charlie, but, uh, the but character imagine of, that as uh, the bad lieutenant Nick Cage. I mean, it would have been <laughs> push, push. He would have yeah. been smacking. <laughs> <laughs> the character of Charlie, though, he does have a brief moment of chew of scenery chewing in his very first sit down meeting with Tilda Swinton, where he is giving his pitch of like, well, it's a book about this. And he's like, and he's sweating profusely. And he's really just getting super hyped up about this idea of where he wants to take this book. And he just I mean, that is a moment where we kind of see Nick Cage not fully unhinged, but beginning to let himself out of his cage and i'm sure spike jones is like all right nick you got to kind of dial it down a little bit after that but but yeah the, the only thing i've ever wanted in life is to see two nick cages on screen <laughs> at the same time and i got it here and it's we, fantastic we just need to, and they need to do a face-off remake where he plays both sean archer both and characters through the whole film and, 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 then, and then they can cut out the horrible surgery scene. Uh, all right, Anthony, come on. Totally, Ranison. totally. Tell yeah, us, well, tell us about this movie. It's your one of your favorites. Watch, Joe. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, so I, like I said, I I am a little jealous. I wish I had watched adaptation first. Um, and and I had thought about it. And I was like, I felt like I was in the mood for a psychological thriller again, thinking that it was going to be something that it wasn't. So I went with that first. I really do. Because you're right, Carlos, you, it put you in a mind space that you could better than sort of appreciate. And and I knew right off the bat when I was watching Adaptation that really that opening scene, the neurotic opening monologue, uh, internal monologue that he has, um, you know, the, the self-deprecation. Um, I'm like, yes, this is this is where I needed to be to better probably appreciate I'm thinking of ending things. Um, but that movie just and, and so then I, I'm and I'm kind of listening to you guys talking about his slight unhinging as he's talking to Tilda Swinton. Like, I, I just thought that, you know, wasn't that the scene where he said he wanted to let the movie exist instead of it being artificially plot driven? Yes. And they had that kind of, you know, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, what um, does that mean? <laughs> And I thought, like, oh, my God, that was – I'm thinking of ending things. He basically let that movie exist without it being artificially plot-driven. And yes. I'm like, shit, 
<laughs> it's kind of beautiful because I agree. Like when we chose to watch these films together, I wasn't really thinking about how much they actually are in conversation with one another. But you think about it, like adaptation has the Donald character buying into all these screenwriting tropes that Kaufman himself, Charlie Kaufman, incorporates into adaptation, right? I mean, like the third the act. Third act. The, the, <laughs> the deus machina and the, you know, all of that stuff that he's like sort of pushing away ends up making its way into adaptation. On the other hand, Donald's screenplay, which is only described to us, the three, is about a character who, a film that unfolds with three characters that you come to find out are all just that one character, right? And the characters are in their mind. That's fucking I'm thinking of ending things. And he's doing it, but without the the plot devices that you would normally have. Yeah. So it's flip-flop. It's adaptation was the film where he adapts the unadaptable using those screenwriting tropes. And I'm thinking of ending things is where he takes the three and he actually makes it into a film more like what Charlie Kaufman in adaptation would have made. Yeah. It's fucked up. <laughs> well, you, yeah. First of all, I agree with all of you. I mean, we cannot argue about the pairing here because interestingly, Spike Jones delivers a much different Kaufman script than Kaufman does. It's more palatable. It's more mainstream. It's more digestible. You mentioned that earlier, Carlos, that Spike Jones can deliver the material in a way that's more, like I said, digestible. But the fan of Kaufman as a filmmaker or a screenwriter, and there's so much to be a fan of here, I mean, can enjoy both in this pairing. Um, I love the idea that it gives Kaufman the idea to editorialize about the American screenwriting in terms we use on the show all of the time, the three-act structure, the third act, rising tension. The, the McKee character in this film is a, you know, is a real guy played here by uh, Brian Cox, amazingly. So good. And yeah, it's so he good. So intense. You're like but, 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 but those um, seminars uh, that he's giving in the film, yeah. they exist mm -hmm. teaching people how to write movies, teaching people the format of the screenplay. And Charlie Kaufman throughout the film is challenging it because his brother is such an advocate of it. Mm -hmm. I love that aspect of this movie. Um, yeah, I, you know, in, in talking about how in adaptation, he does the Donald approach and then and i'm thinking of any things he takes the charlie kaufman approach it totally i anthony had said at the beginning of the first half of the episode that he felt like i'm thinking of any things was more philosophical than psychological and i totally forgot that i had written a note when they're in the barn and they're talking about like the sheep and the pig and like oh what's it like to be a pig or whatever it reminded me so much of like this very important uh i guess essay uh, in the philosophy of mind, uh, and w as it pertains to consciousness and stuff by Thomas Nagel called, uh, what it's like to be a bat or what is it like to be a bat or something like that. And it's like all about phenomenology and like that there must be some sensation that it's like to be a bat, but like we are so far removed from their, how like they perceive the world that we can never understand it, but that, and it's all about consciousness and it's very heady, you know, whatever, um, but that just that just made me think that he is dealing so much with just like really deep existential philosophical issues and that and I totally forgot to bring it up. Um, but <laughs> one thing that I loved, I mean, it's about adaptation. It's so good. There's a line where he says, 
uh, it's when he's talking to Robert McKee at the bar and he lo- he looks Charlie Kaufman dead in the face and says, wow them in the end and you've got to hit. You can have flaws, you can have problems, but wow them and you've got to hit. And I can't, <laughs> I, that almost was like attacking me as an audience member because there are so uh, I, many movies that I've I seen where you, the end is good enough that I'm just like, fuck it, I don't care about the like inconsistencies of you know what happened in the first two act. This movie ended with a bang. And then all of a sudden, you're in this fucking chase scene with Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper. Like Ma- Meryl Streep, of all people, is like trying to fucking hunt Nick Cage down and shoot him dead. And it is just absolutely one of the most bonkers, insane endings of a movie, especially one that's so like you know, just like living in this guy's head for most of the movie and like watching somebody almost argue with themselves for like an hour and a half and then all of a sudden boom let's here we go they're in the swamp an alligator fucking eats chris cooper alive <laughs> like it is absolutely insane and uh one of one of my one of my favorite movies i said it at the top i'll say it again it just does it just does everything right every step of the way it is doing everything right and I, I just thought that there were so many like little parts of this movie that you could have picked up and looked at it in and thinking of ending things. And like you said, it, you know, a more Charlie Kaufman way of approaching it. I'm kind of thinking of a scene. Um, I think it's Chris Cooper and Meryl Streep in the van. And he's telling the story about how, you know, he's loved all these things throughout his life. You know, this is the fuck fish. That, yeah, that, that fuck fish. <laughs> um, I've never even but, stepped foot in the ocean since then. That's yeah, how much yeah. fuck fish. And I love the ocean. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's like, if, if you really love something, wouldn't you, wouldn't a piece of it linger on? And, and so I really, when, the, when I heard that quote, I went back to that, to uh, I'm thinking of ending things because a lot of those, sort of elements that just kept coming out were these sort of lingering elements that as a pseudo intellectual, Jake kind of hung on to. And I'm like, shit. And I'm like, that's, that's that. I was like, son of a bitch. Fuck fish. (laughs) Okay. Two things. One, you said that you were jealous that I had watched adaptation first and then I'm thinking of anything, but that is something that I didn't pick up from the order that I watched it. Had I watched in the order you did, I might have picked up on that. And also, I'm just now <laughs> I'm just now putting this together as far as like my personal relationship with you uh, specifically. How much did you relate to the Jake character from the the trivia master uh, <laughs> role that he has? I've seen you so many times at Geeks Who Drink. <laughs> In fact, if I see you in public, it is most often running into you on a night that Geeks Who Drink is happening. I, I, yeah, I, I was, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of was like, yeah, I can identify with that. <laughs> there are times where I've, I've been at trivia being like, man, maybe I should go talk to her. Like, ah. That's funny. Yeah. I was like, all right, I got, I got you, Jake. I get it. That's hilarious. Yeah, I literally, that just popped into my head. Right? I didn't even think about it when we were. Well, it sounds sounds like between the four of us, there are there's one definite winner here adaptation, and then I'm thinking of ending things. There's enough there that everyone should probably check it out, even even if just to fill out your encyclopedic knowledge of uh, Charlie Kaufman and his work or Nick Cage. 
<laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. This is one of his finest roles. Kylie uh, saw it for the first time with me yesterday when we watched it. Um, and she said that today, most of the people she's talked to, she's like, have you seen this movie? You really need to see it. It's like one of the fucking best movies ever made. Uh, and so now... When we did Being John Malkovich, I watched it by myself. I didn't watch it with her. So I think that we are going to have to go back in the Kaufman canon uh, and watch some of these things. I, I might have subjected her to Synecdoche, New York, now that I think about it. I'm not well, no, on the show, I'd like to do Synecdoche, New York. Because, I mean, let's just, you know, let's round this all out. Yeah, for sure. And, that I mean, that one, you know, I... And I, you know, I said it earlier a little bit, but I mean, I think they're really, I think giving Kaufman full creative control just creates something that is so difficult. I mean, he really takes all of his creative impulses to their, as far right. as he possibly can to the point and, where yeah. they're borderline indecipherable. Like there and are some un, moments uh, in Synecdoche, New York that are just like, what the fuck is this? Like what is And, and uh, Yeah, because unlike Spike Jones, he seems to be less, less of a priority to make this palatable. It's, it's almost as if, it's almost as if he doesn't care about his audience, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't necessarily frame it that no, way. No, I disagree. I, would, I disagree with that. Well, I, th I think there's I think someone could interpret it as he doesn't care about his audience, but I don't think I think the the way to really phrase it is that he doesn't care if you are with him or like it seems to me like the audience isn't the main objective or isn't the main concern when he's creating something. He's like, I'm going to do this. If you join me on this journey, if that's you connect fine. with me, that's fine. But if you aren't willing to do this, I also don't give a fuck. Like let, let I'm just going to do this. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things I've recognized with Charlie Kaufman, you know, going back and watching some of his earlier films where he was, only screenwriter and, and other people were directing his material. We haven't really brought up uh, Eternal Sunshine, which is you know another of his famous scripts that that was made well, by that, Michelle that's, Gondry. That's the pairing There's, with that's the pairing with Synecdoche, New York. It has perhaps to be. We'll, we'll we'll think about that one. I don't know if I'm ready to to make that commitment yet. <laughs> Human Nature was another one he did, the, but there is a split there, and and I think you know it had to do partly with him coming on as as a more commanding creative uh, controlling presence as director and writer with Synecdoche, New York, also with Anomalisa, now I'm thinking of ending things. There's also, I think, between those films, there, there's there's some differences where he stops looking for those clear devices to use, like in being John Malkovich, this portal into another person's subjectivity. Uh, adaptation, I'm going to create two characters out of my own psyche that I'm going to show different you know, poles of how I think as a screenwriter, and I'm gonna embed these characters who are real life characters, but are actually adaptations of those, you know, like, but I'm gonna make that clear, and it's gonna be about me trying to create them, or Eternal Sunshine, I'm gonna create this sci-fi device that allows people to be able to sort of erase memories from people's mind, you know, and with Synecdoche and Anomalies and it, like there's devices, but they aren't as clear and they're a little bit uh, more obscure and totally he's gone away from that more comic vision of the human condition to one that's a little bit more 
heavy. I mean, it's like, like however you want to slice it. I mean, there are funny moments, and I'm thinking of ending things and anomalies and synecdoche in New York, but but there's a lot of really heavy depressing emotion in there you know i mean like this this is not these are not happy films by any means whereas i think pointing to being john malkovich and as as troubling as those films are in some ways they're balanced by the absurd humor to a level that that he seems to have as a director decided he doesn't need to include in in his stories anymore he's a rare artist in the current landscape of film where i get to do that and alienate a portion of the audience, but the audience that does come with me, they they get it, and he's just he's just looking for I think a smaller piece of the pie. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think he's interested in you know huge box office numbers or anything like that. You know, actually, now now that we're but Netflix of, is hold on, but Netflix is Netflix I mean they is, but also, they want this to be a hit. I'm sure they want it to be a hit and it is, it is ranked in their top 10 right now. Like enough people have watched it that it has made their like top 10, whatever movies of this week or however they do that. Um, but also I, you know, net, this probably wasn't an expensive movie to make. So like Netflix also has, you know, some incentive there of like taking, you know, like kind of at least in a certain circle, a high profile, um, Oscar nominated? Did he has he won an Oscar? Is he an Oscar winner? Um, screenwriter and you know, giving him some money to make a thing, and you know, you can say from the person who brought you Eternal Sunshine and being John Malkovich comes. I'm thinking of it. You know, that there's financial uh, incentives for them, but the way that we're kind of talking about Kaufman, which is I hadn't quite maybe put it in as concrete of terms. You know, I see a lot of people when they talk about Uncut Gems, Safdie Brothers, filmmakers that we like a lot on this show. I see a lot of people talk about Uncut Gems. And, like if I see somebody post about it on Facebook, so immediately the first comment I see is, this movie was so stressful. And there are so many people that that movie made them uncomfortable physically. And so Success. They ha- and so they had, well, ex- exa- well, so that's how I see it. I see it as like, yeah, that's what that's what they were trying to do, but not everybody does. And so there is definitely a segment of the audience that's going to see this come up on Netflix as like recommended or like here's what's trending now and they'll click on it and then be like totally put off by it. But I but again, it's like, you know, both of those Safety brothers and Kaufman are filmmakers of like, here's my vision. Here's what I'm trying to do. This is my objective in making this. Are you fucking with me or not? Because I'm yeah, not going yeah. to change it. You know, Get on board. Just so that like you can have like a pleasant experience or that you can like feel good at the end of a movie or whatever. Like we're going to either, you know, uh, I find it hard to say what the Safety brothers like ultimate objective is for them as filmmakers. But like at least with Kaufman, like we're going to ask these hard questions. We're going to push the boundaries of like and and we've talked about this before on the podcast as well in regards to other movies but like what can we do with the medium and i think that's something that kaufman is constantly exploring and pushing is like what can we do with a series of moving images to create art in a way that maybe you couldn't do in another format and that's always something that i can appreciate from a filmmaker is really utilizing the medium to 
achieve whatever it is that they're setting out to achieve. And yeah, so it's, it's why I admire him so much. And it's also just to wrap up, we don't have any questions that haven't been answered. He did win the Academy Award in 2005 for Eternal Sunshine. See, best I, or, best original screenplay. I thought he had. I thought he had won for screenwriting at some point. But yeah, I mean, I will always. It doesn't matter if I necessarily liked it or not. If there is somebody that is pushing the medium of filmmaking forward in like a significant way, it's something that I can always appreciate and something I can always acknowledge. It just so happens that when it comes to Charlie Kaufman, I do actually very genuinely enjoy the things that he does, and I think adaptation is. A per, if if nothing else, a great introductory point to people, um, you know, with the with the star power behind it and the you know, and we, we didn't we didn't even mention the set pieces of being John Malkovich that he gets to go explore as the screenwriter of that film. I mean, that's that's oh yeah, because he's on set with yeah, Catherine Keener and yeah 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 yeah, yeah that was uh, also. Always appreciate a Maggie Gyllenhaal appearance. Big fan. Possibly the better of the Gyllenhaals. I don't know. It's tough. They're both great, but I love I love Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, so that was a uh, that was uh, yeah. We didn't even. It's funny because we didn't even touch on Tilda Swinton. The fucking range that this woman has. Like she is so normal in this movie, and then you know, go to Snowpiercer or whatever, you know, like there's so many other roles where she's just like yeah. this otherworldly being. Uh, and oh, it's, it's uh, I mean, yeah, that, no, this, she's she, fucking yeah, something else, man. She is incredible. She is oh, absolutely. Was, and so many. Oh, I was a little surprised, David, that you didn't mention Tilda Swing because I <laughs> A little crush with her on her, so <laughs> you, you, you know. know she's a favorite of mine. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's that that's very true. I mean, th- what's clear is a, r- a really small part. Yeah. Actors love to work with his material. He can get just about anybody. I know that initially, I guess Brie Larson was supposed to be playing the the woman character, and I'm thinking of ending things, and I think maybe scheduling stuff uh, pushed her out and brought in this. Uh, lesser known uh you know actress but okay, but like I, I said i think she i think she did an incredible job but thulis and colette you know they, they're they're actors who who get to pick their roles um as is swinton and uh uh cage and you know like and and that they all want to work with him you know like i think with this kind of material you get the chance you know maybe once twice in your career to, to kind of work on films like these so it's it's cool to get to see actors really dig into those kind of roles which but for her it is funny that she happens to be one of the most straight-laced and, yeah. and normal characters in the entire film yeah. yeah and i would like to preface what i'm about to say um by saying that i have come around to brie larson as an actress and i have recently developed an appreciation for her that i had not previously had but I am so glad she was not, and I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> the fact that Jesse Buckley was like, I looked at Kylie and I was like, she seems so familiar. But yeah. I looked at her IMDb and I don't recognize necessarily her specifically from any of these things that she's credited for. And I think that that serves the film so much better since she is this amalgamation of like either fantasies or past relationships or whatever that if you had someone as like 
distinguishable and like recognizable as Brie Larson, it would not have worked in the way that it did how it ended up. And so I'm so glad that there was that scheduling conflict or whatever it was that happened. Cause yeah, I, it would have taken something away from what we ended up getting. Um, now ha- did drinking uh, happy little trees, double IPA before this Imperial IPA take anything away from it? Or, or are we fucking with this? What do we, what's, what's the deal? This is our first new Jersey offering. How are we feeling about it? I think it's a I think it's a great beer. Um, I will say I think I preferred the the hop profile of our first beer, Happy Little Trees, which, as Joe pointed out, had a little bit more of a floral quality to it. This one, it was a little more kind of a, the straight up dankness uh, that that I was getting in in the flavor. I like it. It's it's tasty, um, but. You know, I, I prefer probably something that has that the floral, it, it lightens it up a bit. And with a double yeah. IPA, I think it's nice to have something that kind of makes it feel a little bit lighter. Still very tasty. I mean, Imperial Runway models, I would happily grab another can of this uh, on the shelf if I saw it. It's got this yeah. kind of like sweetness that's bordering on like tartness, maybe. I don't know, it hmm. has this, like, or maybe it's like a piney kind of. I don't know. Yeah, it has, I'm getting it ha- the piney resonance. It has yeah, a I'll, flavor I'll that's very familiar, um, yeah. but that I also I'll, can't I'll, buy. Place. I'll buy piney. I think that we put some of our beers at a, at a disadvantage when we compare them to one another. When we drink two of the two, yeah, my favorite, my favorite tonight is the Happy Little Trees. I'll be honest with you, but that doesn't take anything away from this beer. The dankness of it is uh, hitting me right in the sweet spot. And I would tell you that um, as a entrant to New Jersey, these guys have done a great job representing their state. Yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely excited to try some more Cypress here in the future uh-huh. or whatever other uh, breweries uh, we-, we can get our hands on from up there. Yeah, New Jersey is not bad. <laughs> New Jersey isn't is known as a huge craft beer state, but uh, I'm glad to see that uh, they're putting out some things that are, are being enjoyed here in Texas. You know, I have never been to the Garden State, but one of my top five favorite bands of all time is a New Jersey band, and it is not the really East Street Band. Bon absolutely neither of those two bands. My Chemical oh, How dare you? Are they from New Jersey? Yeah. I did not know that. I really like that band actually um no streetlight manifesto is the band okay uh, Streetlight. Um, okay so they, they yeah the, the east of street course, wannabes. Of course. the east street wannabes it, very yeah. interesting um <laughs> i'm <laughs> i am very uh flummoxed by what you just said uh you know do what? you like I... streetlight manifesto do you like charlie kaufman uh have you had any of these beers before please let us know are you thinking of ending things are you thinking you know okay also that title is very misleading because i thought it was going to be a meditation on suicide not on ending a relationship uh because i really truly did not know almost anything about the plot going into watching it i just knew it was charlie kaufman and that i had to see it um but that's that's a conversation for another time uh, t- tell us what you think about any of the things that we have discussed here today. It has been a lot. It has been a very dense episode. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX, Beer and a Movie Podcast.com has a link to listen to all of our past episodes absolutely for free. You can also find us on Patreon.com slash Beer and a Movie Podcast. You will get a bonus episode every single week that accompanies 
uh, the main episode that you get for free for only $5 a month. That's four bonus episodes, at least four bonus episodes every month for $5 a month. You can also donate less per month if you'd like and just feel good about yourself for doing something nice for somebody, but you won't get the bonus episodes. Fair warning. Um, Anthony, do you have pluggables? You want to? <laughs> no, I, I really don't uh, have <laughs> whatsoever, uh, but thank you guys for inviting me. This is uh, always a blast. And so yeah, it's, always, it's always great to have uh, not just a friend come on the podcast, but a friend return to the podcast. We love it. Yeah. Say, hey, Anthony, are you going to come on to the bonus episode? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. As a, as a Patreon subscriber. Hey, uh, my, my guy. <laughs> okay, I want you to psychologically evaluate the relationships in the show. Okay. <laughs> oh, we can try man, that. That is uh, that's that's asking for trouble. Patron. There you go. It's asking for trouble. All right. Well, this has been another fantastic episode of Beer in a Movie. And until next time. People like to think of themselves as moving through time, but I think it's the opposite. We're stationary, and time passes through us, blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end.